0: Hi, I'm Stephen Hawking and I think the the activist livestreams are the best thing to happen since I died.
1: Welcome everyone we're here with a very special guest a very electrifying guest all the way live from uh florida david how are you doing
0: good how are you
1: i'm very well for people who don't know you why don't you just uh, tell us a little about a bit about who you are and uh what you do
0: i do a daily radio show out of tampa bay called a neighbor's choice it started in orlando and uh we've done it now for about four years um on FM and AM. Before that, it was a podcast, you know, that I had done online only interviewing people like Michael Shermer and and trying to understand how to engage um, current events with an accurate uh, uh, toolkit rather than just uh, some kind of uh, pre-scripted ideological, um, you know, uh, identity that you're supposed to pick. I wanted to really get to the heart of it. And I think that jesus offers a political understanding amongst many other things that is pretty profound and we don't even fully have our minds around it yet two thousand years later the human species uh, is still not fully getting what's happening um so i'm trying to help get it faster um, uh, so that's exciting but we do this on the radio show and we use current events to um, understand anthropology and you, we use anthropology to help us understand current events. We also do a podcast called things hidden, which is our deep dive anthropological historical uh, look with a lot of interesting thinkers in in the vein of mimetic theory, Rene Girard's work. Um, and I'm a big fan. I think my work goes into different directions, of course, than what Rene Girard did, but I like to give credit to great, Thinkers, I never downplay them. A lot of people will take um, great thinkers and they'll footnote them, but they don't really emphasize them because in our individualistic modern age, it's very important to make it look like you're the original guru for a great <laughs> idea. And it's actually a classical um, traditional approach to to cite often the great masters that are inspiring you, even if you do things differently or go further than them in certain areas. I'm not saying I've gone further than Gerard, but I just take things into different directions than he his work does. I take it into politics, I take it into economics, I, I take it into physics, which is weird, right? Um, uh, I take social, you know, behavior from a medic theory and apply it to physics when we do our Thursdays, uh, our physics show on radio. Um, but I think it's important to cite great minds that you're inspired by, and Rene Girard is certainly a great figure for my life. To basically understand for so long, I felt like the way Jesus was being taught to me in the broader Christian church community was not quite accurate, that it was a kind of disembodied deity that we were supposed to pick amongst other deities. And you select which deity is the supreme hero, and then you say uncle to them and say your prayers to that deity. And Jesus is just one of many. He's got some special attributes because he's hippie and all this stuff or he's whatever, but he's just another deity that you're supposed to kind of, uh, be, uh, you know, praying your, saying your prayers and eating your vitamins every day in honor of him. And I didn't think that that was an accurate depiction of what Jesus was actually up to. And so that's what got me onto the work of Rene Girard. That's what got me wanting to figure out, I don't use the term conservative, really, or libertarian or anything. I think it's just Christian. Unfortunately, that brand is so big and so wide, and everybody wants to lump you into, well, what is Christian? Christian is Orthodox. Christian is Catholic. Christian is Protestant. Christian is esoteric. Christian is uh, Mennonite. Christian is home church. Christian is this or that, leftism, evangelicalism, and everybody wants to take that brand and move it into their direction and so because it's so vast the Christian brand uh, people are, are are prone to say well don't touch that one leave that to the folks who are doing the whole religious thing you know whether they're a televangelist or a trad calf uh, podcaster if you're doing religion that's over there but if you want to talk about like the civic sphere you have to be better than just talking about I'm Christian you need to talk about I'm a post-structuralist or I'm a critic of neoliberalism or a populist. You know, you got to use all these special terms. You can't just say, well, I I think this is what the Christian perspective actually is uh, on this matter. And and more directly, what I would say is the Christian perspective is that which imitates Jesus's life in the way in which you deal with current events and, and problems in your life.
1: That's a really good way to put it. There's always a problem with labels, isn't there? When you know, especially I, I find the libertarian label quite, when because I'll often use that and say I'm libertarian, and they're like, okay, so, abortions for everyone, you're okay with, sc- and it's just all of these things get conflated, and and I'd actually like maybe we'll ask this later down the line, um, how you deal with because like most political philosophies, I guess, libertarians seem to be split down the middle with the Roe v. Wade um, conversation, but maybe that's for a bit later because I'd like to ask you to explain, you talked about mimetic theory a lot in that intro. So what actually is that? How can we understand that?
0: It's a a theory by Rene Girard, who was a professor at Stanford uh, in his last post before he passed away. And it basically is a grand unified theory of everything in social sciences that says that human beings are uh, imitative creatures, but not just like monkey see, monkey do, imitation of haircuts and fashion, but rather we imitate what we perceive other people around us desiring, what they want to acquire. And we we want, you know, so we don't want to, Porsche just because it's a Porsche innately. We want a Porsche because people who have status that we want to be in proximity to, or to have ourselves, we want to acquire the status that they have drive a Porsche, or if you like country music culture or whatever, you want to have the biggest pickup truck in the town, because that's the culture that you find to have high status. So for a Porsche for you, that's not desirable because your social sphere that you want to, you know climb up doesn't have that they have the biggest pickup truck so all these objects and then and jobs and ways of speaking and ideologies that we pick up along the way are simply tokens of other people that we actually admire or envy or are jealous of and we covet what they have because we actually covet them we covet their being this is an existential issue really um and so we, we, you know, because we feel like there's a fundamental lack in what we have compared to what we see around others, but we don't see it. We don't usually consciously think of it that way We would typically think of it like, well, I'm actually pretty good. You'll see somebody on TV or see us an influencer and you say, I've actually got a lot better than them, but there is that one thing they have that I just feel like I've been robbed from. Right. Right. I mean don't you feel like you should have an audience on size of Joe Rogan and me too? Right? <laughs> so we all feel, well, what, is, what am I doing wrong? Why don't I get to have that? What did I do? Right. And so that that's mimetic desire, right? This is the desire to have that. Well, I've got this and this and this I'm taller than Joe Rogan, but I don't have his audience. Yet, you know, I, wow. Well, and then, and then so we tell ourselves, well, I'd rather be tall than have that. You know what I mean? So we, we come up with things to hide our desire, but we're actually very acquisitive in our desire. We want what other people have. We want, uh you know you can look at it even with the um, conservative versus liberal thing where in some cases it feels as if some of the conservatives and highlighting the sexual nihilism of the left are actually revealing that they covet to actually be living in that kind of lifestyle right yeah as if this is like you know i wish i could not have to play by the rules that i was raised with why do i you know and so that you can see a little bit of resentment there from that side but you see it on the other hand too where the liberals You know, know, I, I, you know, I'm adamant about having abortion on demand, but you don't have any kids and it doesn't look like you're getting married anytime soon. You know, why do you want to take down something that which you don't have? Mm -hmm. You know, well, it's because I'm an ally. What are you an ally of? I'm an ally with a a religious movement that has a revolutionary fervor to proselytize and spread its faith and to go uh, to all nations and baptize all of them in the name of nihilism. It's really what yeah. it is. they. I, I'm just starting to call it nihilism for now on, because that's really what it is. We don't have to play games anymore, right? It's nihilism. They're not oh, yeah. advocating for anything but nihilism. Glenn Greenwald doesn't advocate for nihilism. He's a true liberal in the classical, well, in the in the traditional sense of a progressive. You know, he he's he's speaking truth against power. He's speaking out against war. But what we have today is what I call Dick Cheney and drag. That's what the Democratic <laughs> Party. But, you know, that's what the uh, the left has become. There's nothing distinguishing them from you know the philosophy of a neocon like Dick Cheney. So they are neocon nihilists, and that's important to to to, to name things correctly. You know, so that's why I don't shy away from the term Christian. Is really the best definition of what I'm trying to accomplish in my work. I want to present the Christian perspective on politics.
1: yeah I, I think that's really important calling a spade a spade, but also I think everyone can tick the box of well, I think I'm taller than Joe Rogan, so we've got that one. Most of the population could tick that box. Uh, so how does uh, Jesus fit into that picture then if 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 every if all of our desires are sort of uh, almost dictated in a way by our surroundings, how does Jesus sort of I guess does he break that rhythm or or how does he fit into this?
0: Well, he provides a way to orient that magnetic attraction towards other people into a direction that will not give you frustration, scandal, conflict, and a de- destructive society.
1: Okay. So,
0: you know, you're going to have role models. You have role models, whether you like them or not. They could be your frenemy. They could be <laughs> your, your uh, you know, they could be your person at your job that is the vice president and you're a little bit mid-level manager or something, you know, it could be a lot of things. They could be TV show characters you grew up with. It could be Batman. You're still living. A lot of people still live in the fantasy of their childhood, you know, and the way they, yeah, feel, I, want, you know. I want
1: to show you like the statue on my, uh, oh, there, it
0: is. there <laughs> it is. I guess I subconsciously <laughs> saw that. And, yeah, and I, I, I picked that up. Um, but, but you always are going to have, a role model. But the question is, you know, what Jesus is basically doing is imitate my role model because I'm going to get you out of endless scandal and reciprocal aggression. Because if we're mimetic, that means we don't just desire what other people have. But once we try to desire what they have, they're going to desire our desire for it. And it's going to create a ping pong reciprocal aggressive state between each other, um, which is going to cause scandal. And if you don't solve that scandal, eventually it bubbles up into a bad blood uh, vibe, uh, you know, a bad juju or something, you know, in a community that's going to have a lot of uh, antisocial energies stewing because people are ping ponging aggression. That's what we're in right now. We have that all the time. We have that every day. We people, you know, people are fighting over I'm the most oppressed. I'm the most this. I'm the most that. I'm the victim. My gender is identity is, 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 uh, truly distinctive from all the other infinite genders, you know, how's that possible? How can you be truly distinctive from all the other genders if there's infinite genders? That means, you know, there's, where's the line? Um, So all these different things are attempts to try to make ourselves stand out in a sea of sameness. And that sea of sameness is what happens when desires are not oriented in a healthy direction that diffuses conflict and rivalry. So think about it, if we're human beings are rivalrous to the point where we don't stop even when things get violent and ugly. We'll keep going. How, the question remains, how has the human species survived all this time? That's what Rene Girard was trying to figure out once he figured out that so much of what we do is based on desiring other people's desires. He's asked, well, why are we still here? Because we know like the wolves, they, when the dominant wolf beats the competitor wolf, he doesn't kill the wolf once the, 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 the loser wolf submits his neck. There's no final strike. Well, that'll teach you, you, you know, you deplorable Mm -hmm. fool. And I'll send a statement to anybody else that tries this again. You know, it doesn't have that extra violent reciprocity attached to it. Once the submission has been gained, the dominant submission mechanism allows for order to be established, but the human beings are not like that. You know, if you kill a friend of mine, you know, then I'm going to get a group together and we're going to go attack your whole family. And the survivors of that attack will go and tell the village and they will build an army up and they will fight and that will go on for generations to generations. That's what humans do. But the question is, how do they, how do they stop doing that once that Mm -hmm. starts? Right. How do they go back to good times again? How do you, how do you go back to order and peace? Well, there would have to be a kind of, resolution that people could find through the same process of mimetic desire that started the conflict. So if we're imitating our neighbor finger pointing at us, we're pointing our fingers at each other. You're the bad guy. No, you're the bad guy. You know, you're the liberal. No, you're the fascist. You're the kind, you know, if you're doing that, eventually you can imagine how those finger pointing imitational patterns can start to coalesce around a common enemy. We're still imitating each other, but now we're pointing our accusation in the same direction instead of at each other. And so a war of all against all becomes a war of all against one. And what Jesus did was he answered that problem. He reveals that problem because it is a problem to found an order based on all against one, because sometimes the one is going to be innocent. Many times one is innocent, but when you are caught up in a state of aggression and you are imitating the other person's adrenaline around you and especially when times are difficult, the economy is difficult, or the famines are strong, where there's plagues, lack of crops growing like they should, you're going to be in a state of aggression even more so, and you're going to have a zero-sum mentality, and if everybody can coalesce around a common enemy and say, hey, look, Randall, it's not you that's the problem. It's it's really, you know, the Australian government, what they've done to us. They've They've subjugated us. They've attacked us. Mm. They've um, and I'm picking things that make us uncomfortable on purpose so that we understand <laughs> the, construct the scapegoating mechanism, even when it feels right. Um, mm. It still works. Mm. So you say, well, it's not you and it's not you yeah. or me, really. We've been fighting over a bunch of stuff. It's really just, we're all caught up in a real bind right now because we're oppressed by those people mm. and we need to overthrow them or expel them. Right. Or, you know, think about it in a more primitive sense in primitive societies, you know, Hey, I hate you. You stole my chicken. And then I say, no, actually, you are lying. Um, you stole uh, my pig three summers ago. You know, And you go back and forth, and there's an aggression that's building up. Food is tight. Things are stressful. But then you can come together and say, you know, it's not me or you. It's that witch over there, you know, Belinda the witch. She's different. She came from another tribe. I knew we shouldn't have brought her in. She said she was going to join our tribe. She's never quite fully fit in. She's different than us. She looks different than us. She has a different nose than the rest of us. She yawns in a weird way. Maybe it's because she's got a spirit, evil spirits that she's trying to keep in or something. And they do all of that, and they say, you know what? I think I that think person is the one that's caused a spell on the whole village. It's not you or me, Randall. We're, we're, we've been brought into conflict because of this person. So you join together, and that person says, no, I didn't do anything. You're the problem. And so, well, look how mean they are. I guess we're confirmed in our in our belief that they're really aggressive and they're different and they're weird, and or maybe they have a handicap. And if that's the case, then we would know that the gods don't give handicaps for no reason. They give handicaps to show that you're not loved by them or you're cursed by them. So if you're cursed, if you're walking with a broken leg or if you're walking, you're an albino and, uh, you know, where you're something that makes you stand out, you're too short or you're too tall, Um, you have a leprosy or something, you say, well, the gods hate them. And because we are in community with them, the gods hate us. So the gods want us to get rid of this bearer of unbearable difference. And so you come together. It's not, you know, you don't logically think it out. You feel this out. You feel this together. And you kill them or you send them out of the community and you create catharsis. You create resolution to that aggression because you've devoured and conquered an irresistibly um, scandalous object of fascination with the community. Mm -hmm. So now where you and I were once at each other's throats, now we're like, look, we destroyed the witch together. We over, you know, Luke and, I mean, think about it in modern culture to see how this works. Luke had conflicts with Han Solo about the force, but they came together when it was time for, you know, the Emperor Palpatine yeah. be thrown down the shaft. That was the cathartic mm-hmm. experience depicted in a kind of modern vestige of what was really happening over and over again, spontaneously in human societies, as a way to to kind of stumble into a resolution for uh, bent uh, pent up aggression. It's like mm-hmm. a lightning rod. We've got these energies building in the atmosphere. We need to have it offset into you know the lightning rod on the building. Otherwise, it'll hit the whole place and the whole thing's going to go into fire. And if the fire of desire is left unchecked, human uh, tribal societies realized they would cease to exist. That's one of the reasons why when they had like the, the arrival of, um, of identical twins, they would sometimes see that as a sign of cursed, uh, undifferentiated chaos coming. It was a sign, a harbinger of something to come that would be a state of of malevolent desire, and it was. A, and they would project that malevolent desire of the, the wrath of the gods. So oftentimes they would kill the um, the identical twins because they didn't want to bring in that state of undifferentiation. That's another reason why traditional societies had a problem with the jealous eye. You hear about? You ever heard of that? The, the envious eye, where they're just yeah. watch out for the envious eye. You don't look at the, you know, don't look at it because once you get it, it creates. Uh, bad blood back and forth. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It catches more envy in the hearts of society around you. And so ancient society was very much big on, on staving off runaway mimetic aggression. And the Old Testament talks about that too. It talks about thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's. Uh, donkey and wife and house and anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So the emphasis is on the neighbor. It's the neighbor that you actually desire their being. Mm. All the other things are just a symbol of what you really want, which is to consume their being. Right. And because we we were meant to be in relationship, we're interdividual. So we're just, we're like, we like walk around, like, I don't know. It's like, I've said physics. It's like a magnet. It's like a magnet, you know? Yeah, We want to sync up. Our, our desire, our being is meant to be in communion with others. Hmm. And so when that goes astray, if you're not orienting it with a model, a role model like Jesus who tells you, hey, if you want to be like me, if you want to be a leader, look what I'm doing. I'm washing the feet of those who don't even understand what I'm doing. Like his, his, his supporters at the time he's washing their feet don't even understand the purpose of his ministry. They've been with him for three years. They still don't get it. Can you imagine being that humble and kind to your employee, your workers or your, or, you know, your followers, and they mm-hmm. still don't understand anything of what you're trying to do. And you're just, you know, a, you're about to be murdered in a very gruesome death. And instead of like, you know, yelling at them, you're washing <laughs> their feet. hey guys stop you know i'm mad i'm this is really stressful just leave me alone i mean he does have a little moment where he prays without them they fall asleep they weren't supposed to fall asleep they were supposed to have his back but before that he's you know he's washing his followers feet so if you imitate a model like that you're not going to do things that will invite envy and scandal to others right if you're a leader that comes along and says hey I'm the boss around here. You guys are dumber than me. You're not as attractive as me. You can't compete with me. You just are not as good as me. I am a better human being than you. If you do that, you're going to invite rivalrous imitation, and that's going to create, um, you know, frictions and and, uh, conflicts down the road. But Jesus, everything he does, he says, everything I do, I imitate from God. So nothing he says is original, you know. So the most original man in history says everything I've got is completely unoriginal, and everybody else since him and before him were are always pretending to be the most original guru ever to arrive. In <laughs> they're the ones who are imitating, you know, and, and they're not honest about it. And so they're not free. They don't. They're not truly as individualistic and unique as Jesus, because mm. they don't admit that everything is desire from others, you know. And that, so he's borrowing the desires of of his father, and he's also carrying on the mission of the prophets before him. So, um, so yeah. So, how does Jesus save us from the scapegoat? I guess is, is, is how does how does Jesus save us from the scapegoat ritual? Gerard asked. Well, it's right there in the biblical text. You know, the the scapegoat mechanism, conflict in the community, uh, tensions arise. the The search for healthy differentiation of all against one starts to subconsciously play out. A person who makes the Uh, differentiation, very clear, is selected. They are then um, lifted up as a god, uh, as a king, actually, and then murdered. And then in that murder, something different happens that doesn't happen in mythology. In mythology, um, the murder creates unity. It creates resolution. But in the Jesus story Um, once you see the sausage-making of scapegoating and you realize that this guy is not guilty, um, you then see that it creates disorder. It creates schism because Jesus is unveiling, he's breaking the scapegoat mechanism, which is the binding force for all cultures since the dawn of time. That's why you have Romulus and Remus. Romulus kills Remus, and on his murder, he founds Rome that story is found in all kinds of different story myths for different civilizations. You look at Oedipus Rex, Oedipus says I'm guilty of everything you said I've done. And he blots out his eyes and he's cast out of the city and Thebes is restored to peace. Hmm. That's written from the victor's perspective, right? That's like, that's like a thousand years from now. All the media pieces say the, resu- the war of Ukraine and Russia was resolved because Putin came out and said, I'm guilty. Everything <laughs> I've done I'm, I'm terrible. Everything the West done, has done is right. All their oligarchs are saintly. They never killed a single civilian. It was all me. I'm the one that bloodthirstily killed all the civilians. Ukraine never killed a single person. I'm just a monster. I'm sorry. Uh, please forgive me. Please throw me off a cliff. That's, that's, you know, the equivalent of what myth is. If you look back at it, Mm. it's a scapegoat murder written from the perspective of the winning crowd of that conflict. And they're not going to say, well, we decided to kill somebody who was just a poor guy. That was an easy target. They're not going to say that they convince themselves in the moment that they're right for doing what they're doing. And then they write about it as if the gods told them to do it. So whenever you see the word wrath of gods say equals crowd, Wrath of God equals crowd aggression, collective violence. That's always what you see. So when you see the biblical story, it's the deconstruction of the wrath of the gods. It's way more progressive than anything that's ever happened in history. I mean, it's, it's, it's so radical. We have no idea how radical it is because we've been living in its effects for 2,000 years since. So we're so shaped by it. That when we look at it, we don't fully understand how absolutely, stunningly alien, in some sense, the gospel story was. But at the same time, how close it was to mythology. That's the paradox of the gospel. It mirrors the structure of mythology, but it inverts it from every level. Mm -hmm. Because it stays, remember, all mythology is the story of scapegoat murders told by the winner's crowd. The gospel is that same murder told from the person who's being murdered's perspective. Hmm. So the camera crew stays with Jesus rather than staying with the persecuting mob. And that camera shift of narrative perspective is why you're living in the world you're living in today. Everything you see around you is because the camera shifted from the mob to the one who was being murdered by the mob. And once the camera got into the hands of the one versus the many, that's where we have the personhood revolution of Jesus, where the idea of human personhood was birthed in history. And that idea is going to start to spread and affect slowly but surely through the history of the spread of the gospel to undermine collective violence, to undermine collective mythology to always poke holes in the myths and rituals and taboos of every society that had mitigated personhood to the glory of the collective. And that's why everybody today thinks they're a special little snowflake that makes their own desires, right? Because we are, we are so personhood-baked, we're so saturated with personhood that we don't understand the interdividual nature of personhood, right? We've 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 we've, uh, we've gone so far off the other end that we don't recognize what Christianity is actually bringing us out of, right? And so we end up accidentally creating new uh, versions of the old sacred scapegoating murders, but we do so now with full confidence that we're fully justified in doing it because we're doing it for the victims. So in the mm. old days you didn't murder a scapegoat because you were trying to help disability rights or something, or, you know, women's rights. Mm -hmm. You murdered because this person is different. This person broke a taboo. This person's accused of something. And, and in order to get rid of that disorder that you project into that person, you had to vanquish them. But in today's era now, the only way you can justify persecuting somebody is to say that you're doing it on behalf of scapegoat, right? That's because of Christianity's impact, you know, and because of Christianity's impact, the only way you can get power is to pretend to be a martyr. So today's modern world covets Jesus's cross and they mm. want to build a cross that's higher than him. They see him as a billboard of victim power and they're trying to construct a cross that's bigger than his, you know, well, I see your cross. And I'll one up it because I am a trans, uh, you know, <laughs> indigenous, black Muslim little person. You know, a dwarf or you can't say dwarf. What is it? Little person. I don't know.
1: Little person. That. Yeah, yeah. You
0: see know what I'm saying? So you have to collect victim badges as much as you possibly can, and then not only do you have to have that, but you have to speak. That's the thing. See, those victim badges—they look like differences, but it's actually hiding how us how same we are all. We we. We all are Mm. because they all think exactly alike. If you think like Clarence Thomas, you are kicked out more viciously than some redneck, you know, country guy that likes Trump, right? I mean, if you know what I'm saying, if because it's like, no, 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 no. You have those like external identity markers in the service of our religion. Yeah. The moment you throw off those i those those uh, identity markers. Uh, service to the religion that they're all bound together from you will be viciously scapegoated because you're like a you're like a witch you know you're a heretic mm-hmm. We a second you are clarence thomas an african-american man and you use that sacred victim status that we have perceived for you to go against the revolutionary faith once received by the prophets Carl Marx, a dead old white guy? You don't think what <laughs> Karl Marx the dead old white man the brain? How dare you, Clarence Thomas? You don't think like John Maynard Keynes, that creep, that weirdo, that dead old white guy? You don't think like John Maynard Keynes? How dare you, Clarence Thomas? You don't think like Herbert Marcuse, dead old white guy sponsored by the American intelligence community to develop critical theory? How dare you, Clarence Thomas? You don't think like uh, Michel Foucault Crete predating children in Tunisia, French po- French postmodernist thinker. How dare you, Clarence Thomas? You see what I mean? Yeah. So that's me being deconstructing of the deconstruction people, you know <laughs> frauds and bigots. But that's what all religious zeal does, right? All religious zeal is destroyed by the cross. And we are now given the opportunity to imitate Jesus, who frees us from religious thinking. And when we imitate Jesus, guess what? We're able to create technologies. We're able to create cures for diseases. That's the premise of my entire show. The premise of my entire show is very simple. The problems we have are politics. The solution is to imitate Jesus, free ourselves from the politics, and create solutions with skin in the game to solve the issues politics says they can solve, but they can't. See what I mean? So oh, government yeah. gets its power because they say, hey, we can. So- the planet's melting. Give us power, and we'll pick the new energies for the future. So they, have, they pretend to be a messiah. You know, they pretend to be a god. But guess mm-hmm. what? The government, the state, and its cronies can only do things that result in sacrificial violence. They can't actually create something. Mm-hmm. Christianity allows us to have a, have a, a, a direction for the future to go somewhere. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. So we're meant to cultivate something. We're meant to build something. And, what, and what, the, um, what the messianic globalist state tries to do is try to say, no, look, give us the power and we'll solve the planet, all the problems that you have. And they try to dress themselves more and more like Christ because they're losing. When you lose, you have to imitate the one that's cleaning your clock more and more and more to try to live to fight another day. And so that's why, you know, you know, I call the left, you know, it's Mick woke it's, it's warmed over, uh, you know, you know, it's warmed over corporate communism. It's disgusting. It's repulsive, but ultimately it's just a jealous ripoff of Christianity. And so I don't care about libertarianism. I don't care about conservatism. Those are all just attempts to codify certain elements of the project of Jesus' personhood revolution. Jesus' personhood revolution is where the action's at. And the problem, the reason why people don't understand this yet, is they're still taking a Cartesian model of the gospel. They're still having this disembodied Jesus. I'm telling you, that's whenever I mention Jesus, they say, what, what religion are you selling me? Because they have their Sunday school Jesus in mind. What are you telling me? What, I got to do this and believe that and believe that? No, that's a Cartesian model. I'm saying imitate, be Jesus. Don't objectify Jesus. Make him the subject of your life. And when you learn to deal with the sacred cows of false sacrificial logic of our time, that's when you're imitating Jesus. That's when you start to poke holes through settled science. and You start to see opportunities for uh, helping people. See, I, I don't believe you no. Know, a lot of times, it's very common with the traditional conservative Christians to say that we should not really be that excited about technology. Uh, but that's not true. The Bible is what gives us the founding the founding spot for technological breakthroughs. You know, when Jesus is putting mud on somebody's eyes and praying, that's a form of technology. It's a it's a technology we don't understand, right? But that's what Jesus wants us to do in our lives. He doesn't want us to fight over who's going to pass a bill for Congress for health care. He wants us to solve cancer and make it so cheap everybody can do it. You know, Because when you don't have cancer, you have more options. You're not bound up by that stronghold of oppression that does that to the body and the mind and the families and everything that happens with that. Diabetes. Heart disease. Obesity, all these things are strongholds that we get because we rely on priests that you sacrifice rather than uh, inspiration, innovation, things that Jesus gives us the freedom to do. So Jesus gives us respect for free choice, and these priestly uh, government officials, they're all about denying free choice. They're all about denying uh, free agency. And pretending like they're liberating your agency in the process, you know. Now you're free to explore your gender identity. Where'd you get that from? Why are you telling me I have to do that now? You know what I mean? You're free to do it. It's always been, no, that's your conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy theory that Malthusians tend to like because they'd like the world to be a little bit less populated. Why do I got to accept your conspiracy theory that I've, it's a conspiracy, you were, uh, oppressively conditioned to accept the gender norms that you have, Randall. You just need to be liberated from this. You need to re- realize it's all a cons- it's a paranoid conspiracy out to get you to express your true identity. So go ahead and, and, uh, you know, go ahead and castrate yourself, and that'll help Malthusians depopulate the human civilization. It's wonderful, you know, but they do it in the name of being. A concern for victims right because they say look you're oppressed you're a little more artsy than the other guys you know you like cooking more than you should it's because you need to find your true identity and then you need to take hormone pills that can cause cancer and stuff to mess up your ability to have reproduction hmm. that's but see that but that's what the the, the the power of the new religion is it's a bunch of rich wicked evil people who are predating on the general masses Christian sensibility and aesthetic, right? And hijacking that concern for victims into nefarious directions, but giving them a narrative that makes them feel like they're doing that, which is what the angels would have them to do.
1: What came to mind when you were talking about that is that the way that they do a false imitation of Christ The phrase that I came up with was when they say something like, I'm carrying the flag for X, Y, Z, as opposed to I'm carrying the cross. It's like, my flag is higher. It's higher than the cross. Can you see? Can everybody see? And then as soon as someone finds out that actually behind that flag, they're not actually carrying the flag, and then they scapegoat them, um, which is really outlandish stuff. Um, So this doesn't seem like something christians talk about a lot
0: that's the problem i have yeah
1: so where i feel like i'm
0: out here in the middle it's so weird because i I should have the biggest base to work with but nobody gets this yet so it feels like a little bit ahead of its time you know but Jesus, a little
1: bit yeah so why one of the things that i get frustrated with is that i'll be scrolling through social media and then I'll, i'll get you know somebody saying well Jesus was a socialist because if you look he he really wanted to help the poor xyz um that's i think that's where we're at right now in terms of our culture so how do we sort of turn that around without being too combative because because then isn't that just us going sort of in a mimetic conflict right. against and different- just sidestep
0: the whole deal you don't need to, who cares what it was what, whatever you're you know he was obviously he wasn't a socialist in the sense that i mean i talked to um david bentley hart if you want to see what happens when i try to explain this to a, a good anarcho-communist go watch you know who david bentley hart is he's a theologian I do, yeah yeah i did yeah. an interview with him my youtube channel has been deleted since then so but but i think there's other videos that people put up with it uh other channels have put it up again but um david bentley hart and i and i I tried i brought him on and i tried to explain to him like hey look you know you're you call yourself an anarcho-socialist anarcho-communist you don't like this oppressive statism let's work together on common things we're not going to agree on everything but we can find some common ground because i think statism is really against the gospel too but then he just couldn't help himself from being a big you know fan of AOC and all this stuff, and it's like you're still drinking the Kool-Aid of Empire. AOC mm-hmm. is a handmaiden for Nancy Pelosi. That's mm-hmm. corporate fascism. That's nothing. That's just another veneer. Painted over it to make it look like something new. And so that's the problem, is that a lot of people on the left understand what I'm saying intellectually. You'll get a lot of theologians who understand Girard, and they'll talk about collective violence, and they'll talk about sacred violence, but somehow it's always directed to just Trump, you know? I mean, it's like, how in the world did he do that? How stupid <laughs> do that? How could you be so smart, but so stupid in the application But that's mimetic? That's how powerful mimetic desire is because it's hard to deconstruct your myths of your time because they're very attractive and very seductive. When all the scientists, people that you like say, take 16 boosters, it's hard to go against that because you're a person who went to graduate school. You live in a certain community of wealth. Everybody talks a certain way. They watch a certain, they read certain articles. So how do you go against that? Mm-hmm. When 99% of corporate media is telling you do this, and this is what scientists have said, that's a leap of faith that they're willing to take. Yeah. And even if it injures them, that's part of the faith leap, right? You know, because mm-hmm. if you get injured by a product, will you say, well, it was in the service of science? mmm you know and there's a lot of people that get injured by these products and stuff or their kids get injured and they say well it was in the cause of great science if i didn't do it I, you know we would have been worse off and so injuries can happen but it's in the process of trying to serve the great god the science hmm. and so i always tell people the gods they kind of never left they they just got they just got so deconstructed uh, deconstructed that they pop up as other terms like the science replaced odin yeah. And um, you know uh, the, the the will of the people replaces uh, Zeus, right? These will of the people is the new god. Hmm. And think about it, it's just a word. Remember that deconstruct it a little bit. It's important to do these things. It's just a word, will of the people, hmm. or you say uh, democracy, right? We're fighting, we're supporting, uh, escalating this war in Ukraine because of democracy. What is democracy? The guy, the Ukrainian government fired, you know, I mean, he's he's outlawed his opposition, he shut down media. That's democracy. He's looted his own people with offshore accounts for his oligarchic friends and himself. That's democracy. It's a joke. But if you, if you believe it, it's like a movie. If you have a willing suspension of disbelief, you can get into it. Right. That makes sense. If you just, if you just believe it, like you can watch the Muppets and forget that they're puppets. Yeah, that's what politics is.
1: <laughs> yes, that suspension of disbelief that's just hovering there.
0: Yeah, so wow. they they use these big other like incantations, democracy. That's by the mm. power of Thor, where they mm-hmm. say it's the science. That's the power of Odin, right? Whatever. Yeah, or they say it's the. Um, What's another word they use? What's, what's some of the buzzwords? Uh, it's equity, equity demand. Mm. What's equity? No one said that a few years ago. They used to say equality, mm. but see, their religion is always vicious and always updating its holiness codes and its speech codes so that you always have to, you never get to have grace in their religion. There's mm. no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation. There's no healing. It's just constant, vicious demands of works, righteousness and anger and aggression. And that's another thing. The reason why their religion falls apart is because they can't come up with a scapegoat that they can all unite around. Mm
1: -hmm. I read
0: an article. I don't remember where it was, where um, the media is basically, I mean, the the left was talking about, I mean, this article was talking about how all these different leftist uh, think tanks and nonprofits and foundations can't get their act together because they're constantly busy uh, trying to cancel each other and their jobs. (laughs) (laughs) they go up and they say, I'm trying to get this manager's job. I'm trying to fire him and take his position because I am, uh, you know, this, 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 and this. And then the other group says, well, I am this. And then, so they're fighting. Well, who's more powerful. Is it the native American who is leftist in his rhetoric or is it the, uh, black lesbian or is it the, you know, Hispanic, uh, you know, obese person you have to count it's like counting the different victim points Hmm. right and then how do you settle is once you've counted up the victim points who's most fervent in their rhetoric for the cause right that's the thing that kind of decides it because it's kind of hard to count it all out like Clarence Thomas has no chance right that's why I tell people if Putin wanted to get the American support all he had to do was come out with higher heels than Zelensky (laughs) <laughs> say I've I've realized my true calling was to be a woman, and that's why I invaded Ukraine because of their hyper patriarchal structure. Mm-hmm. And I'm expressing myself, my true identity as Vladimir, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And all he had to do is do that, and they would say, "Whoa, whoa! You are spreading the rev- revolutionary faith. Thank you. We're going to support you now. And weapons mm-hmm. are going to you now." Um. Mm-hmm. So this is this is about at, at the. At the execution level, it is about the real faith. I don't know about that at the top. I mean, some of them probably believe in it, too, in a different way. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a lot of corrupt, you know, wickedness and, and political, uh, you know, capital and, and economic consolidation going on with these things. Mm-hmm. But the people who actually execute these things, they convince themselves that they're doing something good. Yeah. You know? And so that, that, that's how they—that's the faith— that gives scoundrels power. Mm. So if you beat that faith with the real faith, it's like a wild Western movie. You ever watch those old Western movies? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Imagine that like, because the church has not understood the anthropology of what Jesus did, they had a disembodied and basically neutered faith. Mm. And so once you bring, because the Bible talks more about the son, I mean, Jesus talks more about being the son of man than he does the son of God. Son of God denotes the ultimate knowledge of what God is, who God is. Son of man denotes the ultimate knowledge of what mankind is, right? But Jesus emphasizes that he's son of man. So that means that we should have a deep, robust anthropology in the way we look at the Gospels. But because we haven't, we've had a disembodied, ineffective approach to engaging the culture with the church. Hmm. And because of that, a false Jesus showed up. So it's like a wild Western movie. You go in there and the town's got corruption and the sheriff is gone. The sheriff's not around. And a false guy pretends to be the sheriff, right? That's what the hegemonic left is. Mm. They are, they have supply. Ah, We are the source of moral rightness. We're the ones that define bigotry. Mm. That's why their people can be bigots. I mean, you know, Jill Biden just said, Hispanics are as diverse as tacos. She just said that the other day. They get a little <laughs> step on the wrist, but go on. You're part of the service of the, of the establishment. Mm-hmm. You're part of the revolutionary faith. But if, you know, anybody who doesn't serve the faith says that, they're done the rest of their life, right? Yeah. And um, all of that, you know, can continue so long as the real sheriff isn't in town. So the society can go on for years with this corrupt, fake sheriff saying, I'm the sheriff, guys, here to take care of order. But he's doing corruption, he's doing wickedness, mm. making things worse. But everybody believes, well, he's the only guy in town fighting the corruption and evil. Mm. But when the real sheriff finally shows up, that's when things get in that's what that's when things get interesting. Mm. The real sheriff is when the body of Christ starts to imitate Jesus and understand his personhood revolution and what that does to free us from statism and liberate our minds, our hearts from, from false directions and channel our direction into solving problems that the state says they alone can solve, right? Mm. The, the state says they alone can solve COVID, which turns out they created COVID, and they ended up <laughs> help us with COVID. So yeah. what we did as Christians is we said, well, what works? And we figured out different things that worked for people that were very inexpensive in public domain. So think about this, for example, you say it's about, or not, you didn't say, but you were talking about socialism earlier, you know, look at how real market solutions really bypass the question of socialism versus capitalism, because all the solutions that were helpful for COVID were generic and public domain. They were either natural or generic drugs. Mm. Yeah, that's what a real market would do. You know, people think Mm -hmm. a market capitalism is about making as much of a profit as you can. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Markets are about free human beings coming up with solutions. And in a market, you don't have patents protecting medicine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> patents yeah. are
0: a fiction of the state. So think yeah. about it. if we had had a real free market, there would be much, much more fair opportunity for public domain products like vitamin D or you know generic drugs mm-hmm. and be allowed to be re- researched properly. Because there wouldn't be this other special class of patented drugs that the government has given a special monopoly that allows mm-hmm. the same profit to bake up, to to, to, to stack up. Yep. So if everything was public domain, it would be a free, it would be an actual free shot at things that actually solve diseases, having fair chances at getting proper research money and, 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 and cover it. You see? Hmm. So the free market gives you the place to have basically free medicine. That's where you get true universal health care. The free market is what allows people to question the toxic lies of the food pyramid that has poisoned our whole globe with seed oil. You take those things out of your life, you can solve things like diabetes without having to have government health care provided or garbage insurance from the mm. private sector provided. You just stop yeah. eating the seed oils and you, and other things that you can do, and you can heal these diseases without paying for a single product. You see? That's what the gospel allows us to do. It allows us to see that so many things that we think are rarefied, consensus, dogmatic, scientific truths are actually just mimetic cults that sacrifice people who heretically challenge them. You know, And that goes for everyone.
1: So how, how do we do this? People are asking how how you do this practically. So uh, I've been listening to the audiobook of the Gulag Archipelago, which goes for 24 hours, and that's the abridged version. Uh, but there are many times in there where the author says that he is guilty himself, and he, I'm guilty for these crimes that are happening to me and to everyone here. Um, is that one of the first steps to point the finger at ourselves as a scapegoat in ourselves, or am I, am I jumping the shark here?
0: No, I mean, that's part of the Christian repentance is to recognize that the the evils you see in others are, you share some uh, solidarity with that evil, Mm. you know? You, is, is to understand that like you you have to repent you, by repent you mean change your mind change your life go in a different direction and and part of part of Christian revelation is just being able to understand that yes I scapegoat yes I blame others. But that doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't create resolution. That doesn't create cathartic relief. That doesn't get people to say, ah, I've done it. Because, you you know, the only way you can create catharsis is when it's unanimous. See, how can you tell the story from the victor's perspective if you don't have unanimity solidifying the victor's perspective? Does that make sense? As long as you break that unanimity, now you allowed other perspectives to have a word. And as those other perspectives have a word, they start to undermine the reigning myths of a society. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it just reminded me of a joke that Noel McDonald said where he says, uh, uh, I was just reading my history book and it turns out uh, the good guys won every war.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. but we always believe that well there's an exception with our nation we happen to be the good guys in all
1: cases yeah I mean, yeah it
0: doesn't mean that there's never a justified moment of self defense in these conflicts i mean you can get into the weeds of these things but generally speaking most of these wars that we've seen in the modern society did not need to happen yeah but we felt like we had a, re- a revolutionary zeal because we are christian even when we're not christian right because Christianity has had their revolutionary zeal when it when it took over the Roman Empire. Mm. I mean, these are people who would go and lay down their life for their pagan neighbors, even though those pagan neighbors used to laugh at they as they were torn apart by lions. Mm. Now during the plague, that's one of the reasons why Christianity won over the pagan hearts of the culture. It wasn't just a top-down thing. It was they had to have a receptive culture for it. And the receptive culture was that people were, like, very impressed by this strange new religion that was uh, going to the aid of pagans when everybody else was running from them during the plague. What kind of God invites that kind of courage? It was extraordinary. It was insane. It is insane from the world's perspective, you know? That's like AOC coming out to tend to one of the eight, one of the January 6th protesters who was having a heart attack as they were being tear gassed. Like that's, <laughs> it's laughable. But that's what Jesus' movement has been doing for two thousand years when it's doing its job, right? Yeah, that's powerful. How do you compete with that movement? Mm-hmm. How do you compete with that if you're actually doing it? That's why like when that January 6th thing was happening. I never forget. I was doing a health nutrition podcast. I do, you know, I record shows before I do my live radio show and it had run long. And, and I remember, uh, you know, it wrapped up right as I, I clicked, clicked out of the podcast and then I had to click into the radio show and we were there and the music was playing and I was like, all right, I got to go. <laughs> it was getting late. So I had to come in and I turned and I was like, all right, I got to pull up the news. What? Cause I'd been in this long three hour mm. podcast or something. I pull up, the drudge and the head and it's got this picture of these people scaling the Capitol walls. And I'm like, Oh my God, How, <laughs> what do I do to report on this? I don't know. I'm like, open it. You're like, all right, and here we go. Whoops. Close the door. Let's go. I'm out. I don't want to deal with this. This is horrible. But I remember the whole thing, like leading up to it, I was like, why are they doing that? It felt like they were setting themselves up for a disaster. Yeah. You know, to whip up a crowd, and I'm not saying that's not the same as inciting violence. Like I don't think Trump was intending to incite violence. He said, go to the Capitol, be peaceful. You know, he said that in mm-hmm. his speech and people were over there doing violence at the Capitol before he had finished his speech. So I don't know what kind of a Trump supporter they were, if they weren't even listening to the president. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, when I saw that, I said, this is not a good idea because crowd the crowd is a lie, Soren Kierkegaard said, right? So Christians who are actually imitating Jesus know to be very suspicious of big, angry crowds. Hmm. Big, angry crowds is not how Jesus operates, even if they're right on some things, you see?
1: Yeah.
0: And so the, the, when I saw that aesthetic, I mean, it's okay to have a rally, but when the way it was where the, you know, you're getting this big crowd at the event of the time of counting the vote, it just felt like this is a recipe for, you can take that energy. You got to remember governments are masters of crowd manipulation and Trump is too, but there are a lot more masters on the side against Trump, you know, working in tangent together with the institutions, Mm -hmm. working in tandem together institutionally to take that aggression stoke it, and then let it fall on its own face and say, lights, camera, action. Take photos, 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 you know, and action, video. Get the video going. Look, 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 look. And then they frame the whole movement as, see, we've taken care of this process. Hmm. You question war, we're going to turn you guys into terrorists. But it's interesting. The the, the establishment always projects. This is something I think I want to write an article about this because I've been talking about this. I don't think anybody really says it like that. Was the establishment in America always projects onto its dissidents that which it's doing yeah. like in nine 11. I remember that they were saying, if you were not for the Patriot Act and black site terror, uh, 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 torture, and if you were not for, uh, indefinite, uh, detainment and, and, uh, suspension of habeas corpus. If you didn't go along with the Iraq war, you were a terrorist enabler. Yeah. This is, Daddy used to say that, Dick Cheney and those people. Right. So I thought about it. I was like, you know, it's interesting. As they were calling people who were saying, let's have war, let's have peace, not war, they said, you're a terrorist enabler for saying that. Mm. At the same time they were doing that, they ended up supporting Al Qaeda in Libya and Syria. So as they're calling their own citizens who are saying, please stop supporting terrorists, our government would say, you are a terrorist enabler for telling us to stop enabling terrorists to take over Christian churches in Syria. Mm. They opened up the prisons in Libya that were filled with Al Qaeda terrorists and they, and they unleashed a slave trade on Libya and the same thing's happening now because that storyline played its course. And now the story is white supremacists. Remember George W. Bush did the nine 11 anniversary speech. He said, the biggest problem is not Al Qaeda. Now it's these white supremacists, AKA Trump supporters. And then you're like, okay, so what does that mean? so now white supremacists is the biggest, you know, new Al Qaeda thing, right? And you're like, wait a second. So where, who's enabling white supremacists supremacists? Oh, it's our government arming and training the Azov battalion in Ukraine for years. Oh my goodness. Here we go again. You're doing the same freaking abusive tactic. You're the one enabling people with Nazi insignias and stuff. That's your thing, government. You did that. You had McCain go over there and gave Azov battalion training and support years ago. That was what you guys did. And then they have their little chat groups and stuff where they're radicalizing their friends here in America. Azov Battalion and other white supremacist groups. So they know all about enabling white supremacists. But then they tell us who say, please stop supporting white supremacists. Please bring an end to this war. Please stop killing Ukrainians. Please broker peace. They say you are a white supremacist. What? Yeah. That's what you do. But that's what they are. They're a classic abuser. Mm. They project onto you that which you call them out for, what they're doing. Yeah. And you see the script if you just play the history back a few years. Don't let yeah. them put you in their little 24-hour window of news because you'll forget what they did to the 9 story. Yeah. You'll forget how they said anybody who questioned their warmongering and violence and abusive tactics were terrorist enablers. And then that played out, and now it's you're a white supremacist, see? So they always are, but they're the ones doing that all along in both cases.
1: Well, John Bolton is doing a speaking tour down here in Australia soon, so I have some questions for him when he gets here. (laughs) Um, uh, This might be, I don't know if it's off off topic, but I'll ask it anyway, Um, because you brought up uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, who... uh, is one of the people who instigated the idea of taking a leap of faith. But I'm of the opinion that biblically you don't need a leap of faith at all. In fact, I think that's a very weak uh, a weak um, pillar to be standing on. Uh, would you agree or, or uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a very modern sort of idea to have uh, you, your belief system. You just need to have a leap of faith. And well, then- I think
0: the way that's properly taught – it's making that leap a little bigger than what Kierkegaard imagined. You know what I mean? Okay. Because at the end of the day, like, I know what you, I think I know what you're saying. You're saying it's not blind faith, right? Yes, that,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I agree with that. So yeah, the way the leap of faith concept, it feels like a giant leap. But yeah, I, what Kierkegaard is saying you can only go so far with reason before there is a final part, which is kind of like a kind of, well, I'm going to make that next step and just go with Because, you know, because you can't scientifically prove like 100 percent anything, you know, like the resurrection, there is a little bit of a it's a case. Right. So you have to look at things like, okay, well, why would if this was a lie, why would they put women as the key uh, eyewitness reports for the resurrection when Mm -hmm. women's testimony was Mm -hmm. not even worth anything in the in the courts Mm -hmm. of the time? It was considered Mm -hmm. to be inadmissible in the court of law. Yeah. A woman's testimony was considered hysterical and unworthy of any credibility in their court. So why would they bring, if they were trying to fabricate uh, a fake religion for power or whatever, then you would want to see, did they, why would they do that? Why would they hang their mm-hmm. entire purpose of their entire religion? Paul said, if Christ did not resurrect, this whole thing's nothing. Yeah, And why would you hang that on? Well, the first people to see him were women. If you want to make that up, you should put, well, the first people were the men of stature in the community or something,
1: you know? Have you seen the clip of someone asking Jordan Peterson about that quote? Because Jordan Peterson's whole sort of uh, idea of the gospel is, you know, a humanistic worldview where it's, you know, this kind of teaches us, you know, the hero's journey, You, you know, his spiel. And someone asks, well, what about when Paul says that if Christ didn't resurrect that it's all meaningless and Jordan has a big pause and he says, well, I'm just happy I'm not up to that part yet. <laughs> that was, well, that's
0: I interviewed him. Did you ever see my interview with him? I <laughs> did.
1: Yeah. I did. Yeah. I saw you you've interviewed so many people. Um, from Jordan Peterson to uh what's the left wing? I I I
0: Diamond never pronounce his
1: Oak. name. I never pronounce his name right. Diamond
0: um, you talking about Diamond Show?
1: No, no, I'm talking about um Zizek. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: That was fun. Crazy. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, that yeah, it's I I think that if you understand what Gerard is talking about, you you see more evidence for the resurrection, right? Because you got to understand, it's like it's like a it's like in a shorthand, he's saying he can scientifically show that all religions are founded in a dying and rising god myth that creates unity, which is why the story lasts through the ages in these societies as horus right in these different gods and so the question is if that dying and rising mythic structure we can find that pattern in multiple religions around the world that didn't interact with one another then he's saying there must be something that it's covering up for that's actually a real event hmm. just like when we read just like when we read mythic texts like if we read mythic texts from Uh, more recent history, where they're going on a, there's a plague, and they say the Jews poisoned the water, and that's why everybody's got the plague, we as modern Christian-informed thinkers will read that with suspicion. We'll know the narrator is unreliable here. They're just grasping at uh, semi-mythic explanations and and scapegoating a group for something they couldn't figure out because they're not sophisticated, the science people like us, right? And so but what what Gerard is doing is he's just taking that same skepticism of of historical texts of persecution. He's just taking that same skepticism all the way back into mythology. Mm-hmm. But because our modern culture doesn't want to recognize human sin as a universal and the fallenness as a universal, fallen nature as a universal, it doesn't want to extend that same skepticism of texts back to the mythology. You see. That's why you have Carl Jung is still more popular than Rene Girard because Carl Jung, I like Carl Jung for some things, but not that kind of mythic reading protects those texts from being revealed as hidden murders. Hmm. Because if you're talking about, oh, this is all about archetypes, this is just a hero's journey. No, the hero's journey may have something to it. There's nothing, there's always redeemable aspects of these ancient religions. But the idea, the hero's journey is just another scapegoat excuse. Right. Because if you're sending off a guy to fight a dragon, it's because you're trying to kill him, you know? (laughs) I love that. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's a victim, right? In some sense. And him, in the whole idea of, oh, he dies and rises again. What is that? Hmm. Dying and rising again. So his spirit resurrects in the community as now we've, you know, we sent him off to battle. Um, Grendel, the the you know, Beowulf I'm thinking of, you know, we send yeah, yeah. Beowulf off to battle Grendel and then he he dies, and that sacrifice creates a, a, you know a shedding of blood that provides atonement for the community. And so his spirit lives on in a resurrected form in all of us as we remember his heroism, right? Mm. See, that's the dying and rising God in a legend form, and a legend form is a more deconstructed version of mythology. See what I mean? You can look at texts. Like fossils in a record, you can see like they're growing in their structures to different forms. That's what Jesus did in history. So, if you go back before the Gospels, those texts look more cartoonish in violence when they talk about Marduk fell and out popped this people from his head, or you know, it's very cartoonish and abstract. That's how you know it's been, it's not been affected by Christian uh, deconstruction right because it happens before christian deconstruction so whatever myth that we have before that is not as a, as not as revealed to be actual murder does that make sense it's very important to understand this part is that that the gospels reveals the hyper reality of violence hmm. and because of that the modern world has recoiled at the gospel and said look how bloody and primitive and disgusting the bible is that's because they're blaming the messenger for being the one that reveals the violence sausage-making of all governments and societies and culture. Mm. So the libertarians get it wrong, by the way, because they focus on government as an alien entity that's poised itself upon us rather than getting the culture first. The yeah. culture of scapegoating is what produces abusive states. Mm. Right?
1: Well, they say politics is a flow down from culture, right?
0: Right. And Gerard said that the kings, monarchs, came from scapegoats. Mm selected to be sacrificed in ritual sacrifice, but then they find a way to, uh, conv- to delay their death. <laughs> you know what I mean? Over time they're like, all right, next fall, we're going to kill you. And then as that fall approaches, he starts doing a campaign. Hey guys, you know, I'm doing a really good job here walking around with this weird hat and this cape and everything. You know, I've got an idea for how we can expand that bridge over there. What do you think you give me another year and I'll get that bridge done. I've got some friends that will invest in this. How's that sound? They're like, well, I don't know. We were going to kill you. You no, know, just give me a shot here. i you know, I'm special. You know, I'm special. You selected me to be a monarch Cause I'm weird. and I have this club foot. So, you know, I've got some power from God's. Give me another shan- chance. I'll get that bridge built next year. Comes along bridges built guys. You know, I've got another idea. <laughs> you see that team over there, they're going to invade us. I think I need to just kind of be the King for a while. God's give me powers. Don't worry about it. You know? So these guys learn to be great masters of rhetoric quickly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then eventually that scapegoat becomes a God, and it becomes a monarch, and that's where we get these divine right of rule from kings, right? So God doesn't want us to have a king. We're supposed to imitate Jesus as our king, and Jesus is the guy that washes feet of those. So he, so he creates a reversal of what we think of as power structures. You know, That's why Peter says... Uh, the, why were the nations, you know, in rage? Why were they, why were they raging? Why were they all arrayed against Jesus on the cross? It was because Jesus was destroying the entire cosmic power structures of all the world's kingdoms. Mm -hmm. But then he gives us an opportunity, you know, she's calls it the death of the big other, right? Have you ever heard his, his take on the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. He says, it's the death of this transcendent big other, which you can kind of see as the death of the religious scapegoat mechanism. Yeah. It's the birth of the little other, which is this idea of Holy Spirit community. He calls it Holy Spirit community that doesn't rely. See, that's where you get this leap of faith thing. It doesn't rely on this certitude of this objective transcendence that we can rely on, right? It's now now God is not going to be this uh, dominant narrative of our society. God's going to be the prophetic voice that's freeing people from the pain and suffering of these power structures, you see. Mm. And it's it's a it's a god from below, it's a god from the manger, not from the Pharaoh's temple, right? Yeah, it's a god from the food trough. It's it's up. And mm. so that's what the left, the reason why the left beats the right is because the left has been aesthetically in tune with that motion in history more than the right, right? Mm. Because the right has tried to be more establishment oriented. Like, well, I've got a metaphysical acceptance of there's here you go again. Remember what I told you beginning. This is about a disembodied Jesus. It all starts with there. Once you have a disembodied framework of God and Jesus, that's what the right does. They're like, hey, I believe in Jesus on a on a theological sense. But then they're all about, you know, back the blue, no matter what. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you know, support the troops no matter what. and they're starting to learn that in the painful lessons of this Trump era. They're learning. Wait a second. They saw what the January six people being beaten repeatedly, women's heads being beaten 16 times with a baton on the head by police officers, way bigger than them, just beating them on the head repeatedly. And they say, wait a second. I thought I didn't think police did that. I thought that was only for the, the left's people, right? And they're like, oh, wait a second. Maybe this is a myth. And then they started, remember with uh, George W. Bush, they supported wars stupidly in perpetuity. And all of a sudden they started to realize with Trump and everything and Ron Paul before him, wait a second, these wars are built on lies. Hmm. And so they're in the process of repentance right now in some sense. The right is regurgitating their false myths. They're throwing them up, right? And that's a process of repentance. If you're sick with a poison, you have to get that out of your system. And of course, charlatans come along the way and try to redirect that repenting process into more errors. That's what government is for and politicians are for, you know, they're redirecting. you know, they're, they're in the process of waking up to the lies of our system, but there's always a politician to come along and say, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But let's, let's support this, uh, aggressive status position or let, you know what I mean? And so that's where you get that whole deal.
1: Uh, I was having this conversation with someone uh, last week, uh, now were a conservative, and I was saying that conservative conservatism isn't going to survive without a strong focus on Christianity. And the reason I gave, the example I gave was, you know, you've got these huge debates about Roe v. Wade and these huge divides between left and right, generally speaking. Uh, and the right are saying... Abortion is murder, you shouldn't do it. And then the left is saying, no, it's, it's not a human life yet, so it's therefore it's not murder. Now, if you're someone on the left and and you've had an abortion, to admit that the person you're having a conversation is correct, then that makes you the murderer. And that's something that people just don't want to live up to, I guess. It's like the end of Shutter Island. It's like, would you rather, you know, die happy or or live knowing that you're a monster? So the only way in my mind that a conservative could actually have a uh, changing or healing conversation with someone who is is pro, pro-choice, we'll call them, uh, is to say, yes, I, I do think that it's actually taking a life. But, I mean, God forgives you for whatever you've done. Without that piece in the puzzle, that conversation can never end well. Um, so I really appreciate how you're just flat out on the table with i'm not libertarian i'm not conservative i'm not liberal i'm just christian and this is what i'm called to be talking about um i would like to ask you what you think i probably should have asked you earlier um before you came on the stream but what are some of the best books to to study to get more in in touch with what you're all about and what you've been talking about for the last hour
0: well, people have been telling me for years I've got to write my book, so I'm going to have to get that out eventually at some point. Because, you know, I, I, a lot of Rene Girard's work doesn't go into you know plugging it into the political, you know, theories and events of current events. He kind of stay he does it a little bit, but he tries to stay more in the academic field of anthropology. And I mean, he gets into it a little bit in some of his later works. But I would recommend I see Satan Fall Like Lightning as an introduction to his approach to the Bible as the key to all knowledge, right? The gospels is the, is the fulcrum by which all of human civilization and humans, the human species can be known. That's pretty amazing claim, right? (laughs) I mean, if you're a Christian or if you're not, you should want to figure this out because I always tell people, like, if you don't believe in Jesus, like billions of your neighbors believe he's real. So if you think he's Harry Potter, billions of your neighbors believe Harry Potter was a real person and they study him ostensibly. Uh, you know, And they, they pattern their life around being a Potterian, right? And if you believe it's all fiction, you should still be like, okay, well, if I want liberty and freedom, I should work with my neighbors who believe Harry Potter's real and say, well, actually, if you're going to live up to Harry Potter, you wouldn't support Dick Cheney or you wouldn't, you know what I mean? So if, if yeah. you're smart, like I always tell my secular friends, like if you're smart, just go with it, <laughs> you know? Like you don't have to accept it, but I'm just saying, like, if why why divide people? If people, if people are wrong in their belief of Jesus, Jesus still gives them the best answers for the problems that you're trying to solve too, politically. Mm. Yeah. So work with them where they're at. Say, hey, if you believe this, this is what he actually says. Do not resist evil with violence. Mm. You know, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Mm. You know, when, when, uh, when Peter promises, when Peter tempts him to make it a political coercive movement by saying, don't die on the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, accuser. Satan means accuser. Accuser is like special prosecutor or, you know, like someone that, you know, is, is, is going after, uh, you know, trying to stir up a scandal and, and, Mm -hmm. and a political revolution when he's taken up to the, Mount of Temptation. He's he's presented with the kingdoms of the world, and Satan tempts him with the idea of, why don't you just imitate me and sacrifice like all these kingdoms of the world do, and then you'll have the power. Just just sacrifice Herod, chop his head off, and you'll be the new William Wallace. Hmm. Your people are suffering, Jesus. That's what he was being tempted by. He was being tempted to be another Trump or another, another Bernie Sanders or another William Wallace. You know, another Charlemagne. That's hmm. what he was being tempted by, and that's why he rejected it. Right. And that's why he's changing history as he goes. He says, if you want to understand what he is doing, understand this sentence, the stone, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? By the way, have you ever thought about that? It's a strange the, one. The, the, the stone
1: that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the, the most important part of our salvation and also society. And it was what we used as a scapegoat. Um, Oh, being put on the spot that's what my answer would be
0: <laughs> well you know think about it think about it. this think about it. that's true and think but we can go further with that think about the stone the builders rejected dead has become the cornerstone that's a passage it's a it's a passage from the jewish text about the misshapen stone when they're building the temple it doesn't fit anywhere in the grooves of the temple so they leave it at the end and they put it like as the final stone, right? Like the sent, the final, you know, it doesn't really fit into the grooves of the bricks, so you put it at the end because it's misshapen, right? And so think of it this way: that societies has been societies since the dawn of human existence have been creating their temples and their governments and their in their cities on sacrificial stones, and we have been creating our power and our meaning and our language based on the sacrificial violence. But the one who was misshapen, the one who didn't fit in, Jesus, was set aside because he didn't fit in. And in being set aside, he becomes the capstone. He becomes the final stone, the final sacrifice, right? Because at the beginning, here's where it ties in. When Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, when he's riding into Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are saying, Tell your people to shut the heck up. We don't want to hear that. We're jealous of you. We hate you. And uh, we don't want you destroying our power system here. And they had real reason to say that. I mean, they were worried. They were in a very volatile time. They were worried that, you know, this guy not only could upend their power, but he could also get them all killed if Rome came down and struck down his movement if they got aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason why Peter's saying, why don't you take political power? Everybody was thinking Jesus was going to do that, right? Yeah. So they thought he was he was like a Trump or a, or Sanders, like a revolutionary figure, mm-hmm. in in a, in a stronger sense. But I'm just saying, you know, in that vein of like upending the system. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do, Jesus? What's your next move? And they couldn't they couldn't afford to risk that in their mind. And so they tell him, "Tell your followers here to be quiet." And he says, "When they are silent, the stones of the buildings will cry out." Right. And I remember reading that, and, I, and you know, as a Sunday, when you're a kid, you think what Jesus is doing. If you go back to the Cartesian disembodied Jesus, what do you think he's talking about? You think he's saying, "I'm so powerful, I'm like Hercules. I can make those stones sing, <laughs> like some kind of like yeah. like some kind of uh, trip, right? Like a mushroom trip or something, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what you think, right? Mm-hmm. I'll make the rocks sing. Whoa, dang, you're powerful." That's the kind of Jesus we like. We like those show-off Jesuses like that, right? (laughs) That's the kind of Jesus that's more attractive to the human, you know, model of power and leadership. That's not the Jesus that was there. The Jesus that was saying that was saying the stones will cry out. He was quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2 is a prophet talking about a wicked, corrupt king in Israel who was founding victims— in the cornerstone rituals of their city, that they were actually putting human victims at the at, underneath the cornerstone that they would lay for the building of a new wall or a new um, temple or a new structure. They would live, they would put li- live human beings sometimes into these uh, they would call it they call it a meormant. It's where you put mm-hmm. a human being inside of a cornerstone ritual. Um, so Jesus is calling that back into the picture. and he's saying, When they are silent, the stones will cry out. And what that meant was the next week when that crowd was silent, when they turned their back on him, the stones, that means the hidden victims of all human civilization would be crying out ever since. And that's what they're doing right now to this day. You see, Mm. that's why our society is haunted by the victims all around us but we're more haunted by victims of our ancestors than we are for victims of our time. We're more haunted by things that keep us feeling righteous. That's why, you know, the Pharisees said, Oh, if we had not, if we were in the days of our ancestors, we would not have killed the prophets. Mm. That's the same spirit that's animating the haughty left today where they say, you know, look, we're allies of justice, tear down the statues as if they were, if they were back then, they would be on the side of the subversive, you know, innocence. No, of course not. They're the ones telling you, get your jab, and even if it injures you, get another one. (laughs) Yeah, You're not. You have proven yourself time and time again that you are on the side of wars, on bank bailouts, on everything oppressive and vicious and violent and brutal and ugly and lying. So, yeah, you would be on the wicked, ugly side back then too. But they have to scapegoat their ancestors for their scapegoats to offload their guilt. So they're trying to transfer their guilt onto their scapegoat, right? And yeah. that's what you see happening in the in that story is when he says the stones will cry out ever since, that's what we're dealing with right now. Haunted by slavery, haunted by indigenous abuse in the past for indigenous communities, right? Haunted by uh, poverty, right? With socialism being a, f- a faddish cause still for millions of people, always haunted by opportunities for oppression, but never... Able to see it in our own, you know, never able to see the plank in our own eye and the perpetuation mm. of that oppression, right? Mm.
1: <sighs> this has been uh, very heavy but hopeful stuff. <laughs> What's
0: not said- heavy? What, uh, it's very light, actually. Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah. The heavy part is realizing you've been imitating the wrong people all along, including the fake versions of Jesus, too. You know, Mm. because the you know, when you see that story in the gospels, it talks about Barabbas, right? But the original text says Jesus Barabbas, his name was it was it was his name was Jesus Barabbas, Mm. bar ah of bar means of Abbas of the father. So you have two Jesuses, the crowd can save one and kill the other. Do you want the Jesus who says, Hey, make peace with your enemies, love your enemies, forgive them 70 times seven? Or do you want the, you know, the, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's, let's overthrow the power structure and use violence to do it. You want that one. And the crowd says, we'll take Barabbas. We'll take the Jesus of violence. And I think the crowd has been somewhat choosing the Jesus of violence ever since. Even when they say they're worshiping Jesus, they're actually they're actually choosing their other Barabbas as the the kind of Jesus that they have in their mind. But Jesus is still so merciful and gracious that he can save us even when we have those stupid versions of him in our mind. You know?
1: Yeah i I remember you telling me this uh, Barabbas story on your uh, radio show. Um. And I, I'm still mind-blown hearing <laughs> it for the second time because I've, I've forgotten that it was Jesus Barabbas.
0: Um It's a tale of two Jesuses. That's the story. Yeah. But see, you see how meta that text is? As you yeah. read it, you're being invited to like, which one are you? It's so 3D. I've never read a text like that. That's why it's so powerful. I've yeah. never read a text where you are cut to the very core of your human and you're almost being goaded by the text in a, in a kind of interactive way to think, like, how are you being Barabbas right now? Yeah. Do you have the right Jesus in mind? Are you picking the right Jesus as you quote this text to somebody else to say you're a Christian? Do you have the right Jesus even in that framework, you know? Or are, are, are you mistaken? Did you choose the Jesus of your liking, of your crowd passions, which justifies your clicks? ugly violence and, you know, and, and, and offloads it onto your rival. Yeah.
1: There was one thing I wanted to add. Um, when you were talking about uh, the way the media portrays different sides of, a, um, of an argument, I guess, uh, there was this fantastic program by um, Francis Schaeffer in probably the 70s or the 80s where he films one side of a protest and then talks about it. And then about five minutes later, he films the other side and talks about it from the other side. And he just showed all the way back then how I guess this uh, mimetic culture is uh, manifest in almost all aspects of our lives and how easy it is for the media to just pick one side and put the camera angle on that side. And then we just say, oh, that's the that's the reality. And people I mean, keep for, for it every day.
0: The gospel—so how do we imitate Jesus? One way is by imitating the gospel texts themselves, which are written as a piece of media to tell the truth um, uh, against the powerful, right? So right now the powerful are telling us they're only showing some clips from January 6th that tries to divide the country. Because the way they
1: FBI waving people inside, yeah, (laughs) and they don't show the
0: batons hitting that lady. I I just saw that footage for the first time last night, and I'm a guy Mm. in media doing this. I haven't really looked at the January sixth story to be honest, so I'm not, you know, like I don't know all the different facts as well as other people who've made that a big story. But it is something that reveals everything I'm talking about because Mm. you have dissident media voices that never have a platform showing the clips of people being beaten and, and and Ashley Babbitt being shot she didn't need to be shot and killed and, mm. and, and people uh, collapsing and having heart attacks and being carted away like deer, you know, just being chucked away by these people tear gas being thrown when they didn't need to throw tear gas just to agitate the mob, just to work them up and their passions even worse than they already were just total ugliness. And there was ugliness from both sides, right? But one side has all of the institutional power behind it. Yeah. And so it's complicated because the devil, the devil, the, the accuser wants you to pick a side. So he wants you to say you either take the January 6 team and say they're all good, righteous and the other team is monsters.
1: Yeah.
0: Or you do the other way. But you can't choose. You you're not supposed to pick because that's not what Jesus does about that. You don't pick which yeah. violent group is the good one. There there was one
1: line in uh, the movie The Patriot, which I love, uh, where the priest grabs the gun and he's walking towards the battlefield. And then I think he turns around and says, sometimes you got to pick up your gun or something. And I was just like, oh, oh no, why did they have to put that one line in? It's really cringe. Um, But anyway, thanks so much for chatting with us. We had had a very um, heated live chat about how do we know what's right and wrong and if you need to know what's right and wrong from a book, then I guess you weren't moral to begin with. Um, well, you know, that's probably a topic for another day. Yeah, it doesn't matter um, whether
0: you read the book or not. The book read you and it owns your society that you're in. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, 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 the biblical text has, infe- has infected our society, whether you have read the Bible or once in your life or not, and you're swimming in the fishbowl that Jesus put into place in history. I mean, that's just a fact. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't have, show me where do we get victim concern from any other cultural movement in history like this? You have, you can find movements that have some elements of, of nonviolence and things like that, but where do you find that kind of prophetic critique energy, but the biblical tradition that gives us this suspicion about power structures? Where do you show me? Show me where it's from. Give me a better explanation if you want to be scientific and rational. I'd be glad to look at it. But anybody, any true historian, go read Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Have you read that one, How Jesus Changed the World?
1: My uh, my good friend, Ken, who I'm having lunch with tomorrow, if you're watching Ken, hello. He uh, he has a podcast about Dominion, uh, but I have I've not been read you,
0: it. Um, <laughs> I've interviewed um, to Tom Holland a couple of times, and he's a historian. Rene Girard was a historian. Both of who converted to to Christ after they studied history. <laughs> mm. So once you study history, you start off as a secularist and you turn into a Christian when you're honest. You know, because it's very clear, um, it's very clear that everything good about your society, like the idea of like childhood, Christianity invented the concept of childhood as we understand it today. Mm. I mean, the, the, the Romans did not have a, a protection for children; they saw them as weaker, smaller humans that could be exploited for whatever you needed and they would be left to die on the side of the road. What stopped that? Ask this question to people that want to say Jesus didn't change history. So what stopped people from putting babies on the side of the road to be neglected to die in the the elements? What stopped that? It wasn't science. Science, the only way you can build science is do you have to have a cultural force that's making you stop scapegoating people and start looking for other solutions. Like, hey, maybe we can put an adoption program together you know instead of leaving this baby to cry in the wilderness by a bush right yeah. christianity is the cultural force that allows people to stop having unanimous consensus about who to scapegoat and as that unanim as that unanimity starts to break apart people start to look for other reasons like hey the the crops are not coming to fruition this year should we blame betsy the the witch because we did that last year And they're still not growing. (laughs) So they're going to, so that's when you start to say, oh, wow, maybe, maybe there's something we're doing with the way we're growing these crops. Hmm. So that's when you get to do science. But see, these kids that have lived in that for 2000 years, they haven't been taught history because they've gone to government education schools and they watch YouTube videos. They don't know anything about that. They just think, oh, I'm rationalistic, I'm scientific. You wouldn't have science as it's understood without Christianity creating the cultural framework by which societies would lose their knee-jerk appetite to look for sacrifices to solve problems first. We're still trying to scapegoat, and Christians do scapegoat too. It's not a magic cure. That's because we understand free agency and, and human freedom, right? So human freedom is messy when you allow that. Yeah. So there you go. I love it. Uh, Thanks
1: so much for being here. uh, I guess I'll finish with two little phrases. One is that the truth will set you free and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love the Lord your God first, and then you can love your neighbor more effectively. David, my neighbor, thank you so much for being here, and uh, we'll have to chat again real soon.
0: Very good. Take care.